Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at oalaig.org where you will find several speaker feeds with over 800 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. The the opinions expressed on the Light a Candle podcast are those of individual OA members and do not represent OA as a whole. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Frank. Thank you so much. It is such an honor to be here, i got to say. I've listened to this. Oh, my name is Frank. I'm a compulsive overeater. I've listened to this podcast for six years now. I found it um, when I got back into recovery, and I started listening to all the podcasts, and this meeting here changed my life. And I always think that just showing up and putting yourself in a seat here is doing service to somebody out there. Someone like me who is like, oh, I live far away, or I'm traveling all the time, and this is such a blessing, even if you're just sitting there and don't say a word. On the other end, there could be a million people on stage, and I'll say that right now, there's like a million people here. No, I used to get so excited to listen to the podcast, and I would hear the sirens and the clapping, and I'd be like, this is awesome. Um, And so I'm really grateful to be here, and also congratulations. That is a miracle in itself. That's the miracle of the program that I go, oh yeah, that's why I come back here. That's why I come back. Um, My name is Frank. I am a compulsory reader still. Um, I wanted the stats. I have maintained a 65-pound weight loss for the last six years this time. This is my second run through the program. Um, My highest weight always hovered around 265. Most times I didn't get on the scale if I was feeling, you know, somewhat negative about myself, which was constantly on a daily basis. So my uh, my belief in myself, the way I viewed myself, was a direct result of whatever that number on the scale meant. And there were times that I was too afraid to get back on the scale because it was too painful to start, to know that I had to start all over again. Um, my lowest weight in program being abstinent was 172, and that was just in a lifestyle, I was very active for a while, and my as I've gotten older, things have changed. My feet hurt. I can't walk three miles a day, and my weight has been consistent at, I think, 196 right now for the last two years. For me, that is a miracle in itself. Um, my absence currently is three meals a day, nothing in between. I don't do sugar, flour, a lot of grains, and a lot of my food restrictions are not... Um, are just because I have major stomach issues and I've had that my entire life and I finally did something about it by actually maintaining a food plan where I don't eat the foods that cause me to be sick all the time. Um, and that is another miracle of this program. My um, abstinence was actually um, the direct result of a food sponsor I had and I was just so desperate at that time, I was willing to do whatever he was doing. And I was like, he said, this is what I eat. And I was like, oh, I'll try that. But I have all these other problems. And miracle upon miracles, a lot of my stomach problems have ceased to exist since I started the, um, my current abstinence. Um, I keep it really simple. I do fruit, vegetables, and protein. I keep it really super-duper simple. I always tell people, they're like, what do you eat? You know, if, if you want to lose weight, eat less. You know, that's the simple thing of this program. The absurdity is 
I am 48 years old, and that is still a baffling thinking process that I cannot remember half the time. It's like, oh, yeah, I don't have to do all that crazy stuff I did my entire life. If you eat less, you lose weight. The problem is, is that I have an inability to stop eating once I start eating. That's the truth. I have the true nature of the addiction. I have an obsession of the mind that tells me to eat when I'm not hungry. And then once I start eating, I will not stop. Um, so I just want to get that out of the way. So I have two stories. I, I, this is my second through, time through program. Uh, the first time I was um, I, going history, I grew up in a very chaotic, alcoholic family. My mom was bulimic. Um, there was a lot of physical abuse, sexual abuse. Um, we grew up in a family business, and the rule of the family was if you did not work, you do not eat. That was the rule. And, and we ran a machine shop, so in third grade, I'm running a hot mold press hoping that we're going to get fed. But I don't believe that has anything to do with my current nature of my disease. That just threw in a whole bunch of weird behaviors you know, later on in life. But that is not why I have this disease. That just added more insult to injury. Um, and there was, a, a food was the reward and punishment system in my house. If you did not perform well, if you did not get X number of things done that day, you were left out. And it was a, kind of a random thing where one person got left out of the meal. So my, my parents would go purchase fast food for everybody except one person. That one person was the one who didn't perform well. But like I said, I do not believe that is what the nature of my addiction is. My nature of addiction may have some weird traits, but like I said, once I start eating, I have the inability to stop eating. And it doesn't matter what it is, but it has certain foods are really very triggering for me. Um, so my compulsive overeating started. You know, I told you I had a family that restricted food, and then I went to live in Las Vegas with my grandmother, and she was a Mormon. And she had a year's supply of food. And I had never been in a situation before where I had unlimited, unfettered access to food. That was the first time in my life. And I, in three months, I gained 70 pounds. And I ate all day, all night, unlimited cabinets of food. And I don't recall having any kind of food behaviors before that. It was just all of a sudden, it was like, oh, I had this. I was in a stressful situation. I had gotten uh, sent away to go live with my grandparents to take care of her because she was not feeling well. And it was during that time that I found that food did for me what nothing else had ever done. And it, it put me into a state of pure oblivion. And I started learning that I could eat until I passed out. And it was a wonderful feeling. It was better than anything. I would hear people talking about getting drunk or doing drugs, and I'd be like, no, 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 I have the magic tool. And that magic tool was to eat until I passed out. And by the time I was in high school, I, was, I went from, I was probably 230 pounds, and I had gotten into a pattern of behavior where I bought tons and tons of food. I would eat it, pass out wake up and eat the remnants out of the carpet. And it didn't matter if it was chips, M&Ms, tacos, pizza, it didn't matter what it was. I figured out that was my way to feel better, and it was. I had a bad day at work or a bad day at school. I would eat until I passed out. I'd wake up, eat the remnants. But then the problem is, now I'm in high school and I'm 
fat, and I do not like being fat. Kids are not kind. I grew up in Dana Point. I was the second fattest kid in my school. And so I learned a new trick, and that new trick was starving myself. But I didn't consider it that. I was in control. And my belief was that I could control my food. I just needed to get over that hump where I couldn't stop eating. So then I would go through periods of weeks and months where I was, I just stopped eating. I would drink water. I would compulsively exercise. I would do 15, 20 miles a day on my bicycle and not eat. And then I would drop the weight. I'd get down to a super skinny. Everyone would say, oh, my God, you did it. You won. You look great. And that day that I got to whatever goal weight was in my head was the first day of my next binge. That was, the, And I would go right back. I didn't go like, oh, I'm just going to eat a little bit and be okay. I went right back to eating until I passed out. And not every time I passed out, but sometimes you know, you eat, and then I'd just sit there, fall asleep, wake up, and I would do it all over again. And I did that every single day. Um, I dropped out of high school uh, on the 13th day of 11th grade. And people say, how could you remember that day? That was the day I broke my diet. I was like, I'm not going to be the fat kid at school. I went on a diet on the 13th day. I was riding up to school. I overate on the way there. And I just went, okay, no more. I'm done. I turned around, and I never went back to school. School for me, especially in that era, like it was the 80s. It was like every 80s movie, you know, where all the good-looking kids and the surfer guys. And then there was me, and I was this fat, rolly kid with the big, giant jacket on, so nobody could see me. I wore the same jacket every day. Um... And that's what my life was every day, day in and day out. I lost the weight again. I, I was, went anorexic. I was taking diet pills. I was doing drugs. And I ended up joining the military because I was like, that's what I need to do to keep my weight down. Great idea, right? Why are you joining the military? To keep my weight down. It's a beautiful idea. It worked. Um, so once again, I joined the military, and I thought, this is a geographical relocation. I just need to get away from everything, and I'll rebuild my life. And the truth is... As we know, that doesn't work. So in the military, I had at least 15 different military outfits because I never knew when I was going to be a 32 to a 44. And it would waver. I mean, there was never any period of time when I could say, oh, I'm going to be this certain weight for this period of time. Um, I had a friend who was in recovery. He had just gone through AA. I started going to meetings with him. And somehow the Navy decided that I was an alcoholic and that I, too, needed to be in rehab. So I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. Now, at the time, I did, I drank to get drunk. I never drank to just not get drunk. But it was during that, I'd be in these big therapy groups, and it was the 80s, so it was very therapeutic and loving and lots of 12-step work. And I remember the day I was sitting there, and I had never told a single person what I did with food. I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed to tell people what I did. And I was listening to a bunch of alcoholics talk about their stuff. And I was like, you know what you people do with alcohol? I've been doing with food since I was 13. They're like, no, no, this is different. No, it wasn't. Um, And that started my recovery. That was the beginning of a new life. I was in San Diego. I went to meetings. I did every big-time L.A. OA guy that was up here. There was a lot of big superstars in OA. They would come down to San Diego. They would do these retreats. They would do these things. And there would be hundreds of people showing up. And I was a young guy in the military, and there was tons of bulimics, and I was bulimic. And I mean, you, you have this great pool of wonderful recovery and lots of social. Everything was really good. Um, 
but I look back now, and I really, I was in the fellowship of recovery. I was not in the program of recovery. The fellowship of recovery back then was insane. There was movie stars, and they would come in, and you'd be like, oh, you know, you see someone on TV, and now they're at a meeting. And I thought, this is recovery. I went to John Bradshaw. I did a lot of stuff that wasn't recovery. And what happened was, I, I got thin. I stayed thin for a while. I traveled in the military. I came out, and I never went back to an OA meeting for almost 25 years. And during that time, I, I've been clean and sober for over 30 years. I've always gone to AA meetings when things got rough. I'd go, oh, I'll go to a meeting. Things were kind of rough at home. I'll go to a meeting. I did 12-step groups. I did writing workshops. I did the program, but I didn't put down the food. The truth is I did not put down the food, and I didn't want to. And during that time, I did everything that everyone else does. I did the drugs. I did FenFen. I did every Weight Watchers. Knowing inside that I needed to go back to do this, but knowing I was not willing to give up the food. I would not put down the food. Um, <clears throat> I ended up getting married. Um, my, my now ex-wife, uh, she was my first girlfriend, and I was her third husband. So I, I sympathize with some people who say, you know, the relationship part. I had no idea. I had no idea how to have a relationship. And someone said, oh, you're the one. I said, oh, fantastic. Someone chose me. She's beautiful. She's been a size seven her whole life. What it fed a great part of me that was feeling completely worthless and gross as a human being. And that's what it did for me. And, you know, like, I, we, I'm on the last sentence of the last part of my divorce, and one of the things I look back in, I got something out of all of that. You know, I don't look back in regret. I just look at it and go, you know what, I just didn't know myself. About six, actually six years ago, uh, things were really bad. I was binging really heavily again. I was back into the starvation. I have a certain pattern. I starved myself for months at a time. And then I think, okay, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to go eat. And the truth is I can't. Once I, once I do, I just can't stop eating. And so I had been doing that for 20 years. And I'd wake up every morning sick as a dog. And I'd think to myself, okay, I'm not going to do that today. I would be in the shower. I'd pump up. You're getting all pumped up. All right, I'm not going to do this again. And I'd get in the car and I would drive to work. It was always 10 minutes away from work. And within three minutes, I was at McDonald's binging before I even got to work. And the big book talks about this thing. Um, it talks about that incomprehensible demoralization. And that I carried that into every relationship in my life. The inability to control my food affected the way I saw myself, the way I saw my family, my ex-wife, my friends. I could not pull myself out of that. Um, so what ended up happening is I started Googling for OA meetings because I knew I needed to stop. It, it was so bad. I was sick all the time. I have major, oh, how can I say this? I have major bowel issues. <laughs> so, so it was at the point where I knew that I couldn't eat something. I knew I couldn't eat something at the store, and yet I would do that and then not be able to leave that store for 30 minutes. Like I would be stuck inside a store. I would have to drive on the freeway and pull up on the side of the freeway and run into the bushes because I stopped at Taco Bell just before I got on the freeway knowing that it was going to make me sick, but that part of my brain that blocks that out, like this is not going to happen this time, it happened to me every time. I really relate. When I hear alcoholics talk about, you know, it's, they would talk about it's not going to happen to me now. Like this is going to be okay. There was never a part of me that said, hey, 
if you eat this, you're not leaving the store. I mean, I'm going to get so sick I can't leave the store. And yet I would go and do it. I would be forgetful. And then once I got on there, I would be done. And now I'm sitting at the store for 45 minutes in like the most disgusting bathrooms in the world because my brain totally forgot that once I started eating that kind of food, number one, I'm not going to stop. And number two, it's going to make me sick. So I started realizing that things were bad. And my marriage was awful. My work was awful. And I was living in a constant state of fear and anxiety and that demoralization where you don't want to die, but you're thinking, maybe I'll just get through today and tomorrow will be better. Tomorrow will be different. I swear, tomorrow's going to be different. But every day was the same. Um, I actually started Googling and I found Harlan. Harlan is a guy who speaks a lot. His stuff is all over the internet. And I... That change, that day changed for me. That listening to him changed my life, and I was like, oh, I need to start doing meetings. So I started going to meetings again. I found this podcast. I found Joe and Charlie, uh, which, by if you don't know who Joe and Charlie are, Joe and Charlie do a big book study. It is the foundation of how I currently live my life is based on that study, which is based off the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It is that piece has given me more of a foundation of how I want to live my life than anything else. Um, so, kind of my current lifestyle. I travel five days a week, sometimes six, six. So, I leave every Monday. I fly to New Jersey, Chicago, New York, Florida. I travel to the other side of the country every single Monday, and I fly home every Friday, sometimes Saturday morning. So, I have maintained my abstinence for six years with no kitchen, um, I live on the road. I sleep in hotels. They're nice hotels, but it's still a hotel. Um, my schedule is crazy. My weekly schedule is really stressful. And abstinence is the most important thing in my life today. And I prep for it, and I make my life around my food to the point now where it's not even difficult. I fly. Sometimes I'm on a plane for eight to nine hours. I schedule. I prepack my food. I maintain abstinence, even in all of those circumstances. And even that, not only doing that, but also in a way that doesn't get me sick because I can't eat bread, I can't eat grains, I can't eat sugar. All that stuff completely makes me physically ill. Um, and I live a life according to knowing that I cannot pick up the food no matter what. And it goes back to that thing we talked about, the nature of my disease. If I'm picking up the food, I can't possibly work a program. And even in the chaotic lifestyle that I live currently, and the fact that I can't consistently go to meetings or make phone calls or call people back because of my travel schedule, abstinence is the most important thing in my life without exception. And by the grace of God today, I do not have the obsession of the mind that leads me to that first compulsive bite. And that's a miracle. I go to stores now and I go, okay, I need to buy food for the next 12 hours. And there's no part of me that's dreading that experience. And I lived in a state of constantly dreading that experience, not knowing what I was going to pick up, or worse yet, picking up something that I knew was going to make me sick and doing it, knowing it was going to make me sick. And I do believe that's not only working the program, but that is the miracle of the program, that my life has changed and God has changed my mind and my heart to where that obsession of the mind does not exist. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. There are days that I'm like, sometimes I go to cities where 
the stores are like, I just came from New Jersey, and sorry for anybody in New Jersey, but there is no grocery stores in New Jersey. And I'm like, how do you live? How do I eat an absent meal for those three days when there is really no functioning store anywhere close next to me? And you know what? I made it happen. I went and found a little, they call them delis. They're not really delis, but they're like these stores. But I found food that I could eat and I, because that is my number one priority. And I think God provides for those circumstances because it is absolutely, without exception, the number one priority in my life. And like I said, I don't have a functioning kitchen. I, I maintain abstinence with no functioning kitchen. And I eat super healthy because I can't. I told you I eat very simply. Um, and I do travel a lot. So what ends up happening is I'm only home maybe one day a week. And I have chosen in the last two years, since I filed for divorce, um, I've chosen to not get another house. So during the weekends, I either stay in hotels or I stay with friends and family. And that creates a whole different thing. So I don't have a single place that I go, oh, I'm going to go cook some food. No, I don't do that. But still, amidst all that, I have maintained my abstinence 100%. And I always tell people, you know, there are times that I was living on $6 a day, and I eat the exact same as I currently when I get my per diem, which was like $65 a day. And there is no difference. There is no weight difference. There is no food choice difference. So I always tell people there is absolutely no reason to not put the food down. You know, we put the food down the first time and God works with us to not pick it back up. And that's how I look at it today. I put the food down and God keeps me from picking it back up. Um, oh, damn, let me see. So my second, uh, so one of the big issues, one of the big things, it's really neat if I said, well, I have this great spiritual thing that God speaks to me every day. The truth is I live a life based more on the principles of the program and hope that God gives me grace in the decisions I make based on that. I don't ever hear God's voice going, oh, this is what you're going to do today. It's more of like, here's what I know is right. I'm going to see how this goes. And God has always blessed me in that direction. And what that looks like, I, I, um, I filed for divorce two years ago. I realized when I put the food down that I was pretty miserable. And the truth is, I was not a very good person either. I was an addict. My ex-wife lived with an addict for 25 years. And just because I didn't come home drunk and with a lampshade on my head does not mean that she did not have to suffer the consequences of my behavior. And I was one of those guys that when things got rough, I would sneak out of the house. I'd go to the local store. I would binge for 30 minutes, sometimes 45 minutes, and unspeakable amounts of food, and come back and be like, oh, everything's fine. I'm sorry, honey. Everything's going to be okay. And that is not a true relationship. That is not. That can, no relationship can live through an addict in their food. And for me, putting the food down meant feelings came up that I realized it was time for me to end the relationship. And doing that in a way that's honoring to me, her, and my children is based entirely 100% on the principles of this program. You know, I cleaned up my side of the street. When I talked to her, and I, I could give a laundry list of everything that she could have done wrong to me. The truth is, I looked at it and said, here are the things that I didn't do very well. Here's my part in that dysfunction. Here's my part in that relationship going bad. And the benefit of that is, is that we are great co-parents. My goal was to be a great father and a great co-parent. 
And I was able to do that, not because I had some great ideas, but because I applied the principles of this program in all my affairs. I pray for my ex every single day. I pray for my kids every day. Um, when things come up and I get triggered, I do a fourth step and a tenth step on it. I did four fourth steps in a period of three months just after I filed for divorce. And let me tell you, there's nothing left in me of bitterness or hatred or resentment. Those are the things that I will go eat over. You know, they say resentments are the number one offender. And I knew that if I didn't work on this, that I was going to go back out there. And I don't think I have a third round here. I really don't. You know, I, I, I listen to people and I go, would I put the food down again? Would I put that food down again? Knowing what I know and knowing how good it fixes my problem. You know, my problem isn't my weight. My problem isn't that. My problem is that I have the inability to stop eating because food works for me. Food fixes all my internal problems. When I had a really horrible rough day, food makes that go, ways that just literally disappear. And now, today, I do not have to use food for that. And God has definitely provided outlets in my life that have gone beyond my expectations of how I wanted to live my life. Um, trespasses. I want to talk about trespasses. During my time of binging, I worked for a very abusive boss. And my part in that was, like I said earlier, the incomprehensible feeling of being a complete horrible person because I could not control my food. I figured everybody was viewing me the way I viewed myself. And I... Not by coincidence. I found people in my life to treat me exactly the way I was thinking in my head. I do not believe that's a coincidence. We find people to treat us how we feel about ourselves. Um, and during this time, you know, I had to go back. And I have some, you know, the worst kind of offenses to forgive are the ones where you're right. Those valid, of, you know, it's easy to forgive somebody who, you know, cuts you off in traffic because you don't know them. But how about the people that purposely went out to harm you? that's the true nature of this program. That's when I look at That's true forgiveness. Like, how do I work with that? And um, I, the big book talks about praying for those people. So I get down on my knees and I prayed for my ex and my boss every single day and I wish everything for myself. I would wish for them. And sometimes I put a lot of curse words in there. There was a lot of four-letter words coming into that. And you know what? God removed that resentment. You know, and, and the... Resentment is rehashing an old emotion. And I'm not saying, there are times I'll be driving down the freeway and something will trigger me and all of a sudden I'll be like, oh, I should go and do something terrible to that person. And I'd have to remind myself, oh, why did I pick that resentment back up? And I have to start the whole procedure over again. Oh, I'm going to start praying for that person. You know, and today I do not live in resentment towards anybody. Things come up. I mean, things always come up. Some guy cut me off on the freeway on the way up here. But I don't have to live in that. I don't have to live in that. I can choose to think differently. And I believe those choices are what provides me with that ability to, um, to really see God's handiwork in my life. I talked about doing my... I do a 10th step every night. I don't send it to anybody. But I do a 10th step. I write it out. I have a program on my phone. And I write out 10 steps, even the most mundane things, because I notice that, um, okay, this is silly. So I, this is, this is the, the crux of it. So I'm at the stage now where I, I always get upgraded to first class, right? 
There are times that life has deemed that I do not get upgraded to first class. <laughs> God forbid. I don't get first class. And I noticed I had like a little bent about that. I had like a little bent about it. And then I realized I was holding a resentment. That's a, that's a goofy resentment, right? Like how many people go and get upgraded first class? Well, it just became, I became accustomed to it. And so I noticed about a month and a half ago, I was up on the list. I was supposed to be number one. I'm like, oh, good. I get to sit in a big seat. I'll take a nap. It'll be wonderful. I'll stretch my legs out. I get free Coke Zero. Oh, like nothing could be better than this. And they gave it to somebody else. And I was like, I, I almost went out of my stinking mind. And I was like, okay, well, what else is going on in my life that this is that important? I mean, this is the perks of life, right? Why am I making it? And I just realized that sometimes I feel entitled. And I don't like that. I, that's a character defect I didn't realize I had because I like to see myself as super humble. Like, oh, no, it's okay. <laughs> but boy, oh, boy. Take away my Coke Zero and the big cushy seat, and I'm going to lose this rocket. And you know what? I had to be so nice to everybody. Like, I had to make sure I... One of the things, you know, because I live a very uh, isolated life two days a week, I, I'm just... I'm just on a, I'm airplane to airplane to taxi to, I realize that I need to choose my own adventure. It's like those choose adventure books. You know, the big book talks about blessing other people, like being there for other people. So one of the things I start doing is I'm the guy that helps people put their luggage up on the rack. Not because I think they need help, because it gets me outside myself. I make sure that when I go to the events and the meetings that I find the most uncomfortable looking person and make sure I make them my project for the evening. So there are many times I have to do these things and I see I can see that person and I go, oh, they are as in they are as externally uncomfortable as I am on the inside. I just happen to show it, you know, I can I can do my little song and dance. But that's how I live my life today. I live my life in accordance to those principles that guide me to what I believe are better choices, which I believe God would have me do. And that's how I live my life currently, and that's how things go. I think that covers it. I think we're good. Thank you. Thank you for letting me share. I will be happy to take questions. Yes. Thank you so much. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it was like building your self-esteem up when you didn't have the question? Can the you repeat the question? Yes. You're asking me, how did I build myself back up um, after this? Because, yes. So I have major, um, not major, I'll just say, I have um, body distortion in how I look. So, although I've been the same weight for several years, there are times that I look in the mirror and I weigh 50 pounds, and there's times I look in the mirror and I weigh 500 pounds. And so, that comes and goes, and I always know that there's an emotional issue behind it, and I spend a lot of time looking at the cause and conditions. One of the things I do to really build my self-esteem is I always look at it and go, what is my part in that? What is my part? How do I view myself in that situation? Um, I had a big thing about people touching me. You know, I was married for 20 years, and we hardly touched because I blamed her for that, and then I realized that's really my issue. I created that in the relationship. 
And then I went outside um, about two years ago. I looked for help in that area. And I started, this might be an outside issue, I started going to cuddle groups up here in L.A. <laughs> and that, so I, I, because that was an issue, I mean, that was terrifying. I mean, I really thought women would be disgusted if they had to, you know, hug me or touch me or give me a hug. And so I was like, you know, I have a lot of loose skin. I spent my entire life gaining and losing the same 60 pounds. I probably lost 60 pounds at least, I would say at least 50 or 60 times. My skin is not going to go back to the way it is. You know, it doesn't matter how much weight I lose, the skin stays the same. And so I have just, I always look and go, I'm going to be the best person I can be today. And one day that won't matter. Like I said, some days it doesn't matter, and I can go months where it doesn't matter, and then there's other days that, yeah, unfortunately, I weigh 500 pounds again, and I go, oh, I'm here again, and I have to start all over. I hope that helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Yes? Thank you very much. Could you talk about your process for steps one, two, and three? Yes. Um, the question was, can I talk about my the steps one, two, and three? <clears throat> I would say almost on a daily basis, I have to remind myself that I'm not only powerless over food, but I also actually, I change that up a little bit, and I also go, I'm powerless over my family, I'm powerless over my my immediate family, I'm powerless over my kids, and I can actually work a program just based on, I am powerless over my 16-year-old teenage daughter, and my life is unmanageable. That is a true statement. And when I do that, I don't have to live, you know, expectations is the quickest route for me to be in a resentment, especially with, especially, I hope there's no 16-year-old here, especially with a 16-year-old girl who I get is living in a place where the world is about her right now, and she just like, Dad, I need this, this, and this, and she's giving me a laundry list, and I go, ah, I'm powerless over that behavior, and she's, she's just emotionally, she's 16. I know she's going to come back to normal in three years, but I practice. <laughs> I've done two of them already. This is my third one. The last one's on the roll. Um, I practice that because I notice if I give up trying to control her or her emotions or her behavior, then I don't have an expectation of how I think she ought to be treating me. Most of the time when people do things like that, I realize I'm taking it personally, like doing that against me. She's not doing that against me. She's 16, and the world is about her, and she's just like a dog running through a, you know, a dog shop. She's having a great time. And I, I realize that, and, and part of that is then being able to pray for her and go, God, not only give me the strength to not want to rip her head off, but give me that grace to allow her to be who she wants to be without being offended. My biggest issue is being offended. Like I said, I get offended really easy. I have no skin. I always tell people, I'm like, I don't feel like I was born with skin on. So everything rubs me funny. Someone will say, how's your day? And I'll be like, what do they mean by that? And I'm like, <laughs> but that's crazy, right? I mean, like, I know in, intellectually, I know it's crazy. Emotionally, I have to remind myself, I'm at a, I do not have control over how people behave. And knowing that when I behave, like I said, when I behave according to the principles of the program, I notice I develop a very keen sense of my place in this universe. And God, I look at God as good orderly direction. You know, my, my relationship with God has changed. I was, um, you know, I've been in the church for 40 years. 
and 46 years, and the last two years, I've decided to look at making some changes. I don't know what that looks like, but I know that that God, as I understood him, was not keeping me out of the food in a way that made me feel like I had a personal relationship. And currently, I'm reevaluating that, and I do not know what it looks like right now. Thank you. Yes? At the end of the day, um, food has always worked really well to deal with stress or a lot of emotional issues that may have worked that came up. What, what tangible tools or activities do you utilize to deal with that? Because the food worked really well for that. I do a couple things. Um, Oh, sorry. Uh, he's asking, what are some of the tools that I use currently to deal with that buildup of emotions and feelings and all the things that I used to binge on? I was a night binger, by the way. I waited till and fell asleep, and then I had my stash all over the car and in the house. Um, probably the biggest thing is, you know, I used to walk every night. I pray. I listen to, I, I'm a big podcaster, so I will listen to podcasts to remind me of what I'm doing. I have forgetful disease. I will forget, by the end of this night, I will forget that I'm a compulsive overeater unless I do something to actively practice my program. I do yoga now, which I, thank you. I do yoga now, and so I, I do physical activity. I also do, like I said, I do, I have a program on my app that is a 10th step, and it, you can go in there and answer some questions, and that always reminds me of where I'm currently at in my program. So thank you for letting me share. Yeah.